British accent. Can we just thank Sam? Awesome, bro. Yeah. Thank you. Junior at Sequoia High School, and up to this moment, I thought I was tied for first place for one of your favorite people. Oh, I am too. Where does that leave your wife? Okay, she's beyond. Awesome. Morning, everybody. It was Easter night of uh, 2011, and I was in my office. Uh, we had had four gatherings that day and night, and I was in my office to look for a book because I was looking forward to our family getting away and heading down to Coronado Island for a week away on vacation. And as I was uh, heading down I, into my office, I heard a clear voice, uh, more clearly than I usually hear this voice. As I was looking for a book to read, this word came into my mind. How good is good enough? Uh, this is a book we give away every Sunday. Uh, it's back there, and it's for people who think, like me, prior to coming to Christ, I'm good enough. Well, that's really a subjective answer, right? How good is good enough? And so it's a little booklet, and so I thought, oh, okay, I'm going to pack that into my bag. I'll, I'll bring it. And then as I was looking for a book, another voice, same voice, but another word came into my mind. I am not making this up. Come back. Come back. Okay? And I just thought that and packed. And Monday morning we were on a plane heading down to San Diego. And we went around, checked out Coronado Island, and checked out the resort, checked out the beach. And the girls, we had a meal. It was great. And it got late in the night. And I said to Ann, hey, I'm going to head to a jacuzzi. I need to unwind. So I entered the jacuzzi. Uh, one other guy was in the jacuzzi, and there's a jacuzzi etiquette, right? Uh, and so we just <laughs> nodded and said hi and, and sat down. And um, I was exhaling, just reveling in the experience of Easter, trying to live in it and reflect on it, and it was just awesome. And just exhaling. Well, this guy was exhaling too. And he was exhaling so loud I could hear his exhales over the jacuzzi jets. And so finally I said, um, you seem distraught. And he said, that's an understatement. He went on to tell me he'd been at the resort for, excuse me, for a month. And that he was actually headed home tomorrow, the very next day, to go back to Mexico, where he was a TV executive. Up here a month, I said. Your family must love it here at the resort. Now, I was really proud of that because my family accuses me of not paying attention to detail. I saw he had a wedding ring. I deduced his age. And I thought, okay, the dude must be married, must have a family, the whole thing. So I said, your family must love it up here. And then his face just lost its color, and he said, uh, my family's not here. My family left me a month ago. That's why I'm here. He went on to tell me details, and I'll spare the details because, frankly, uh, he deserved to be left. Um, and as we continue to talk, uh, what came up next, and I am not making this up, what came out of his mouth next made my 102-degree temperature skyrocket. He said this, I'm up here looking for a comeback. I just took my head and just started smiling, and he said, was that funny to you? I'm like, no, I'm I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry, but what we just celebrated, we went on talking, I said, well, we just celebrated yesterday, Easter. I'm like, that's the greatest comeback in history. I go, if a guy could be stone cold dead for four days, three days, be wrapped in 80 pounds of grave clothes, and come out of that, bring his body back to life, come through the grave clothes, push aside a four-ton stone and come through a whole legion of army soldiers with new life. I'm like, it doesn't get any better than that. 
And then he promises a comeback for people like me who are moral rebels and like you to have new life in him. I go, you come to Christ and he'll offer you a comeback. Well, that opened the door for a lengthy conversation. And I left that experience in awe of many details, not the least of which was the truth that God had forecasted in my office this divine appointment, giving me the very words that would come out of this man's mouth. And then God had actually sent me down to Coronado Island. I thought I was going on a vacation, and I was. But God had other plans in mind, a little icing on the cake, if you will, for those of us who know Christ. And then, not only that, God had sent his Holy Spirit ahead of me for this man to bring conviction in his life. And then God had sent us both to the jacuzzi at the same time. All the contingencies are mind-blowing, if you think of it. Okay, so we're in John 16. Hold that story. We'll get back to it in a minute. We're in John 16. It's hours. There's just hours left in the life of Jesus. And he's still concerned about others. As a matter of fact, the saddest point of the passage that Sam read for us was this part where he said, none of you are asking me where I'm going. You're so self-consumed, you don't care about me. And he's so others-consumed, because that's what love is, All he can think about is them. And so in the greatest, longest teaching of Jesus that we have in the scripture, he's equipping his followers for how to live life when he's gone, like in the state we're in in 2016, in February. Jesus is in heaven, and Jesus has equipped them. That's why I think John 13, 14, 15, 16, it's essential reading for anybody who wants to live as a disciple in this age. Essential multiple times, right? Let yourself soak in it kind of reading. And primarily Jesus in those passages, when he teaches on the Holy Spirit and in every other place in scripture, the teaching of the Holy Spirit is about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the followers of Christ. Our passage today is the only place in scripture where the teaching of the Holy Spirit is for not yet followers of Christ. The ministry of the Holy Spirit in people who don't know Christ, Jesus tells them what that ministry is going to be like. And he's giving them a strategy for his departure. He's saying, look, here's the deal. Up to this point, we heard it last week, up to this point, it's all about love. Abide in me, John 15. I give you a new commandment. Love each other, this community of love. And then he introduces this strange word, this word that actually it's a swear word in our house. We don't let our kids use this word. When they talk about school, when they talk about food, when they talk about each other, the word hate. Jesus says, I'm sending you to a world that's going to hate you. As a matter of fact, people are going to think they're serving God when they kill you. I think of that passage every time I hear of another ISIS martyrdom. They'll think, God be worshipped, we're killing the Christians. And Jesus says, go. How's that going to happen? Think about this. These Jews, these loving guys, they have no status with their own people. They're from northern Israel, the Galileans. They're the the low rung of the social ladder in Israel. And Israel has no status in the Roman Empire. Israel is on the low rung of the ladder in the Roman Empire. And Jesus says, go, change the world. And then he says, oh, one more thing. I'm not going with you. This is where I stop. And you keep going. Can you imagine before the Super Bowl, Peyton Manning in the locker room going, I'm not, some of you think this is good news, I'm not going out there on the field. Go win the Super Bowl without me. Jesus is going, how 
you know, these disciples are thinking, how can this happen? What is this going to happen? Jesus provides the most plausible answer around. And don't miss this, okay? Because it's essential to our mission as a church. It's essential. Jesus was not only sending his disciples, he was sending the Holy Spirit as well. See, in our church, we really believe we are sent ones with a message of love and truth and grace. Jesus, in the book of John, 40 times, people, 40 times in the book of John, this book we've been studying since September, describes himself as being sent. This is an important word to God. And then he sends the disciples. And in this passage, he says, not only that, I'm sending someone else ahead of you, the Holy Spirit. That's amazing to me. And that's exactly what I experienced prior to coming to Christ. I experienced a sent one from God bringing conviction, bringing a new perspective, bringing the desire for change. That wasn't humans. It was God working through humans. So let's look in your notes at the general work of the Holy Spirit. This is going to encourage you so much. And then let's open up to page 2 and 3 and let's talk about the particular work of the Holy Spirit. Let's start in page 1, the general work of the Holy Spirit. you have your Bibles open, John 16, or your phones? Quit Snapchatting, tweeting, stop it. Like open your Bible app at this point, okay? John 16, verse 7 and 8. The general work of the Holy Spirit is to bring conviction. Look what it says. You there? John 16, 7 to 8. Is anyone there? Good. Okay, right on. But very truly I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. This still blows my mind because I really believe having Jesus by my side, it would actually be a good thing. Uh, how many of you are married and have had conflict with your spouses? Okay, how many didn't raise your hand and you deal with lying? That's your issue. <laughs> I like that. Okay, so here's the deal. Like, we have conflict all the time. We had conflict this week. I would love it in the midst of a conflict to stop my wife and say, wait a second, Jesus, what do I tell her right now? Jesus tells me, like, well, here's what Jesus said, okay? To me, that would be a good advantage, okay? It wouldn't be good if Anne had Jesus on her side, but me on my side, that would be good. Jesus says, think about this, I'm giving you an advantage, See, Jesus could only be at one place at one time. Not all of us could have Jesus at our side. Now, with the Holy Spirit, he indwells every follower of Christ for all time. It's an internal, it's what I heard in my office, the Holy Spirit internal. It's like Jesus by my side, just having his hand on my shoulder saying, you don't need these books, grab that book, because I'm arranging a divine appointment. And you'll know it's your divine appointment when you hear the word, come back. See, that's advantage sort of stuff. Jesus says, it's to your, for your good that I'm going away. Because unless I go away, and now he's going to use uh, a legal term. He uses it throughout this whole discourse here. The advocate, the come-alongsider, if you will, literally what it means, the come-alongsider will not come to you. But if I go, who is Jesus? He's the sender. I will send him to you. Jesus is a sender. Jesus was sent Jesus sent you. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. I'll send him to you. When he comes, he will, now circle this term. We're going to build this one out. He will prove the world, another legal term, to be wrong, in the wrong, about three things. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. That word prove the world wrong really, literally means a court word in the Greek language to cross-examine someone to show them their error. 
to put someone on the witness stand, and the Holy Spirit now is the prosecutor, drilling them in the most loving way possible, drilling you, drilling me. This was my experience prior to coming to Christ. We question after question after question to expose the lie that we live in. Because with our sin nature comes the nature of denial, men and women. We all think we're not as bad as we really are. And we all think we're better than we really are. I've got good news for you. You're not as good as you think. And you're worse off than you realize. The Holy Spirit's job is to bring you to that understanding. Now hang on with me before you exit the building. Just hang on. We'll get good, okay? The work of this prosecutor is to place someone on a witness stand to expose the holes in their story, to undo the fabric of a person's view of things. The only way the Holy Spirit can get us acquitted of our guilt before God, the only way the Holy Spirit can get us acquitted of our guilt before God, you ready? Is to make make us realize we are guilty before God. Because our sin nature is to be in denial. Prior to coming to Christ, 18 years, I thought I was actually good. I never thought about how good is good enough, but I was better than all my buddies. And everybody, listen, you got to hear this. Like, I broke all the Ten Commandments according to Jesus. But I thought I was good because I, had, I gave God an hour on Sunday and five minutes every night reading my New Testament. You know, it's just unbelievable. Has this happened to you? Has a divine presence come alongside you to show you the error of your ways? To expose your behavior and your inner thoughts for what they are? Shameful? Despicable, actually, before a holy God? Have you had that experience? I don't say that to call you out. I say that to call you to reality. The teaching of this passage that the Holy Spirit is sent to not yet followers of Jesus to provide the sensation of a divine presence to deal with you, to cross-examine you, to expose you at your core. Now, don't miss this. And to give you hope for a change. That's what makes the Holy Spirit's conviction good. Because just when you're at the end of your rope and you think, ah, I stink, the Holy Spirit's conviction says, no, no, you don't stink. You're loved. God loves you just like you are. But he loves you too much to leave you that way. So you've got to come to a basis of truth. You tell me one relationship that thrives that doesn't have a foundation of truth. There's not one. Our offices, mainly Brian Wren's office, is filled with counseling sessions with relationships that are eroded because there was non-truths. It was built on non-truth. So the Holy Spirit's got to bring us to a place of truth. Please hear me. This is so important to what we are as a church. Christianity is not a system of behavior management. Or it's not a lifestyle additive that increases morality in some areas. So you just have a little bit of Jesus in your life portfolio. That's not what Jesus came to do. It means at the core there's a transformation, an inner working, a new nature. That can only start by coming under the conviction of the Holy Spirit that you need change, that you're not just a little off-center in need of a little God help to get better. Something is desperately wrong with you. I can be so forceful because I've seen it in 30 years of ministry. I've seen it in my own life. i just got to look in the mirror and understand this. So that's the general work of the Holy Spirit, and that's actually encouraging. You know what that means? This world out here, I'm not their judge. I'm not their convictor. That's not my job. That's the Holy Spirit's job. 
My job is just to live in truth, to present truth. My job is to look for the divine appointments. My job is to love people and let the aroma of Christ come through me. And for some people, it's a smell of life, like, like even this morning. I could tell you story after story. This morning with my baristas at, at uh, Pete's, 6.30 in the morning, divine appointment. I'm like, oh my gosh, this doesn't get any better than this. My job is to love, to speak truth. The Holy Spirit's job is to convict and draw people to Christ. It frees me up to be a sent one. Now let's dive in a little bit, okay? That's the general, page two. Let's dive in and see what this means. What does this mean for you tomorrow morning when you're at Sequoia High School or at Woodside or whatever high school you go to, Woodside Priory? What does this mean when you uh, go to work tomorrow morning, wherever you go? What does this mean today when you go back home in your neighborhoods? What does this mean? The particular work of the Holy Spirit, verse 9 to 11. He will go after conviction, that's the general work, in three specific areas. Here's the first, the conviction of sin. It's the conviction of insufficiency. Verse 9, Jesus said, about sin because people don't believe in me. Wow, why would the Holy Spirit make us feel bad in order to make us feel good? Because that's the way things work. Try to get someone in any addiction, let's just pick alcohol, in an alcohol addiction situation where they don't believe they're addicted to alcohol. You try to get them on the path to healing. What's it going to take? An intervention. Speaking hard truth to them. Do whatever it takes to jar them out of their denial and make them realize you don't just have a little problem. You are destroying yourself, and so you're destroying every relationship. You don't only, if you're in relationship with an alcoholic, you don't only have an alcohol problem. I have an alcohol problem because of your addiction. You come out with force to do whatever it takes as lovingly as possible to make them feel bad because it's the only way they'll start feeling good and get help. See, the good news isn't good news until we face the reality of how broken we are apart from Christ. Not just that we've done whatever sins, but all our acts are sin. We're rebels at the core. It's not just that I do bad things. Apart from Christ, I had to come to a place where I realized, oh my gosh, I don't have the capacity to be the man I want to be. The best version of me is unattainable apart from something, someone dealing with this sin nature. Our love for the helper is conditioned by an awareness of need for help. In Luke chapter 7, uh, verse 47, it's not in your notes, but in Luke 7, uh, Jesus went to a dinner at a Pharisee, someone who thought he was way better than he really was. And this Pharisee welcomed him, glad-handed him, sat him down at the table. He actually reclined and had cordial conversation. It actually wasn't about Jesus. It was about the Pharisee feeling good that Jesus was there, that he could be seen with Jesus. They could drill Jesus a little bit. And then a prostitute broke into the meal. And she found Jesus. And she starts crying. You know the story. And she just cries over his feet and wipes his feet with her hair. And this Pharisee, under his breath, says, Oh, if he only knew who she was. And Jesus, because he's always on the side of the margin, stops the meal. says, Simon, I'm going to tell you something. He says, I came in here and you glad-handed me and, and you were courteous, but she embraced me. You obliged me. She's pursued me. Why? Because she's convicted of her sin and she's been forgiven so much. You are in denial of your sin. You don't think you need me. That's why you treat me the way you do. Literally, it says, therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great great love is shown. But whoever's been forgiven little, 
loves little. Imagine you're a lifeguard and you see an Olympic swimmer swimming in the Pacific Ocean. And they're doing great. They're working out. And you go swim next to them as a lifeguard and you go, need any help? That would be an offense to the Olympic swimmer because they don't see a need for help. They're of Olympic caliber. Now, same scenario. You're a lifeguard. You see someone drowning in the ocean. And you swim over to them. You go, do you need help? They would see you as a savior as opposed to an insult. What was the difference? Same lifeguard, same ocean. The caliber of the need for help and the awareness of it. Have you come to a place, Jesus says, when you go before me, just bank on this. Come to a place, trust, I'm at work helping people understand their need for me. Helping them understand that they can't do it on their own. Helping them understand the moment they die, a hope so isn't going to get them to heaven. I have more for them. This is the fuel that drove the early church. This core conviction that someone's gone ahead of them to convict them of their guilt and their sin. And we just get to walk in that and find out who those people are. Conviction, forgiveness, a new start, a life mulligan. That's what drove my new jacuzzi friend to start confessing his sins right there in the hot tub. I was just blown away. He didn't know me, but he just starts telling me all the evil that he committed. And as we talked out it out in a grace-filled, shame-removed, truth-valuing environment, it caused him to view his behavior in a whole new light that night for the first time. He's like, you know, it's weird. I, I, I've all seen what I did was wrong against my wife. I didn't think it was that bad till tonight, but now I kind of feel bad I did it against God. God gave me this. God gave me my mind to think. And God gave me power as a TV executive. And God gave me a wife and kids. I squandered it. I don't just feel bad about what I did to my wife. He said, I I feel bad about what I've done to God. That's conviction of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to stop for 15, 20 seconds. I'm going to ask you this question, very practical. Have you come to that conviction? How is the Holy Spirit bringing conviction to you right now? Just think about that. This is different than a conscience feeling bad. And it's different than uh, a demonic attack. Like uh, the enemy, we'll get to him in, in a few minutes, will make you feel bad about you where you say things like, I stink, I'm this, I'm that. That's not the Holy Spirit's conviction. Holy Spirit's conviction is this act was wrong. This act was this. This act was that. And there's hope. Now, Jesus goes on, and it's very important. There's a progression here. Stick with me. Then he says, not only is he going to convict about sin, he's going to convict about righteousness. This is actually a conviction of provision. The conviction of provision. Look at verse 10. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. What Jesus is getting at here is about us making ourselves presentable before God. 
that the Holy Spirit actually goes ahead of you to prepare people that you're in relationship with, if you're a follower of Christ, to make them see their need for a whole new outfit so they can be presentable before God. It's the metaphor that's being played out here. So we all try to be presentable. Uh, not so much in this service, I won't tell you which one, but it's actually a service where I get judged by what I wear. One of our four services. And so on Saturday, I open my closet and I just think, okay, what am I going to wear tomorrow? And I iron it, and I even iron my underwear. I mean, it's really important to me. A little TMI, but it's the truth. Because I care about being presentable, right? I don't want to wear too much flash because I want you to be in the Word, not thinking about me. I don't want to wear too little. Anyway, it goes on and on. (laughs) Who's Jesus? Here's an old-fashioned word. Some of you will know it. Jesus is a haberdasher. He dresses you so you can go before God and be presentable, right? Not that you have to dress right before God. I'm talking metaphorically here. Have you ever thought about what it's going to take to be presentable before God? The Bible word for that is righteousness. Righteousness. Uh, So prior to coming to Christ, my righteousness was an hour on Sunday, most Sundays, an hour on Sunday. Uh, Sometimes it was 55 minutes. I'd choose the, the, the shortest service and go to that. And then five minutes a night reading the New Testament. Can you imagine if I died standing before God? Like I told you, I broke all the Ten Commandments according to Jesus in high school. Can you imagine standing before God in a holy, loving, truthful, wrathful God and him saying, why should I let you into heaven? I'm holy, God would say. Now, you've sinned. Oh, wait a second, God, I gave you five minutes a day. The rest 23 hours and 55 minutes, that was my time. But you got five minutes a day, and you got it 50 minutes a week. Do you really think that would cut it? Jacuzzi man thought it would. As we were talking, and, and we got to this part, and I didn't use this outline, but we were talking about what would you say to God if you were to stand before him? That's a good question to ask, because you will stand before him. Uh, jacuzzi man said, uh, and I say jacuzzi man, just I don't want to give his name. I'm not talking in a pejorative or negative way. He, he says, well, I, I go to church every Sunday. And I was, we were talking that through, and I was pushing back humbly, and he said, you mean my church attendance won't win me any favor before God? Now, I've learned in talking to people, you have to meet force with force. I'm telling you, this is one of the most alpha, alpha males I've ever met. And so I met him with force, and I just said, you know, honestly, hell is filled with church attenders. I never thought of that before, he said. I go, look, I don't mean to demean that, but the Old Testament says, because he believed the Bible, I said, the Old Testament, I can't use a literal translation in this setting, but you can read it in Isaiah 64. I said, the Old Testament says, your best deeds are like filthy rags, because God is so holy. The New Testament says, your best deeds, Philippians 3, is like a pile of dung before God. High schoolers, you think the Bible's boring? No, it's not boring. And he said, uh, wow, I guess an hour a week doesn't cut it. I'm like, it's a good attempt, but it's not changing your life. It hasn't made an internal transformation. Maybe there's something more. See, men and women, I want to tell you that Jesus didn't die to simply uh, forgive us or offer us peace or a good family or successful you know, career in whatever field you're in. Jesus doesn't want to be a little additive to your life. 
He wants to be your life. We just sang that. He wants to be your life. So you can see the passages I put in your outline about righteousness. Romans 1, uh, 2 Corinthians 5. Jesus wants to be your righteousness. That's what he was saying. I will outfit you. I will, I will make you right before me. So where are we at this point? What does the advocate do? He exposes us of sin. He convicts us of righteousness. He gives us what we need to approach God. I want you to think right now, what is an area of righteousness, the best version of you, that you just can't attain on your own? Only God can do it. What is it you need from Jesus through his Holy Spirit? Think about that. The last particular work of the Holy Spirit who goes ahead of us with people who are not yet followers of Christ is judgment, the conviction of security and stewardship. Now, if sin brings about denial, this, I think, is the greatest denial in those who are not yet followers of Christ. It certainly was in my life. I had no clue, and I thought I was okay on the day I would face God. I had no clue what that day would be like, even though it's clearly displayed in the scriptures, and I thought I'd be okay. It was the biggest form of denial in my life. And so Jesus goes after that because he loves you too much to be in denial. He wants to be with you now forever. Verse 11, and about judgment, he says, now this is interesting. He goes, about judgment, he goes right to Satan. What? About judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. And I don't have all the time to go into this, but here's the bottom line of this one, okay? He says about judgment because from Jesus' perspective, the world is ruled by two rulers. You're either in one kingdom or you're in another Everyone is naturally born in the kingdom of darkness. Now, I can, after the service, show you where this is in the Bible. Uh, And before you think I'm a whack job, honestly, it comes down to, can the Bible be trusted on this one? Really? Can God's word be trusted? Especially as followers of Christ. I want us to know this. That we're under the kingdom of darkness. The prince of the ruler of the air. You see the notes here uh, where it talks about that in Colossians 1. If you're taking notes, Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 10, really spells this out. And Jesus came on a rescue mission to take us out of that kingdom and put us under a new ruler, the Lord Jesus Christ. And word on the street is, Jesus is confining. Jesus takes away all your fun. Jesus will make your life miserable. The reality is, life under the old ruler, the prince of darkness, is slavery, it's bondage, it's pain, it's destruction. It's terrible. It's just terrible. This actually provides security and stewardship. So Jesus says, it's amazing. I'm going to send you, and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit before you. He's going to do three things. He's going to convict the world of their sin. You don't have to. You love people. You Present the truth. Let them do the. Let me do the convicting through the Holy Spirit. Then the good news is He's going to convict people about their righteousness. Just when they think they fail before me, He'll say, "Ah, oh, but I've got a garment for you that my Son, that I, came on the cross to get, and you can have a right standing before me." And then He'll convict you of judgment. That's good news. It provides security. He'll rescue you from the kingdom of darkness and put you in the kingdom of the Son that He loves. So before I knew it, my Mexican jacuzzi friend and I were like prunes in this jacuzzi. The jets had stopped about an hour before, and we were wrapping up. He said, I got to go. I got to catch a flight tomorrow. He goes, thank you. And he literally said this. He goes, you've been a godsend. He had no idea how true that was. I don't say that about me because I just showed up in a jacuzzi. 
before you leave, I said, as we're drying off, I said, can I pray for you? He said, yeah, that'd be great. And so I prayed for him. And then I remembered the first message the Holy Spirit gave me. How good is good enough? And he was walking away like, wait, 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 wait. You've got to come to my room. And he looked at me kind of weird. <laughs> and I said, I've got something for you. And we went to our room. And uh, he was in the hallway because all my girls were asleep. And Ann was asleep. And I got the book. And I said, before you leave, I have something I think will summarize our discussion. I, I really think this will be of great value to you. And then he walked away. And I'll never forget the image of him walking down that hall. And I was just blown away. And let me tell you why I was blown away. Not because of the encounter, because that's what happens when you're a follower of Christ. You have those encounters. Here's what blew me away. About 25 years prior, I was him. I wasn't an executive or anything like that, but my sin was sin. And I was in a place where I was destroying my life and destroying lives around me and living in denial. And the Holy Spirit had come on me to bring me conviction And now, here I am, full circle, 25 years later, because rescued people rescue people. That's what it's about. And that's what we're about as a church. You think you live here because you chose to take that job? Or you chose that high school? Or they chose you? I want to encourage you, you're here by divine appointment. And if you're a follower of Christ, the only reason we have breath it's because God wants us and has sent us on mission to be salt and light. And before you freak out and sweat and like, what do I say, what do I do? Don't worry about it. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you and through you and trust he goes ahead of you. Now, if you're here and you're not yet a follower of Christ, and I, I'm so glad you're here, and we say all the time, you don't have to believe before you belong. The only reason you have breath because there's a God who loves you. And longs for you to be in relationship with him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you as followers of you that it's not about us. uh, That we've been sent here for your good. For your glory and for the good of people. Uh, Forgive me for making it about me so many times. It's terrible. But thank you for your conviction in my own life. And thank you for the fact that you have not orphaned any one of us. You've sent us and you've sent your spirit along with us to be an agent of good in this world. Father, I pray that you would use us greatly. And I pray for those who don't know you. That today that that conscience that's been getting at them, they would see it as a loving God who wants to have a relationship with them and transform them from the inside out. God, may new life spring up. And may you use us on this peninsula, Lord, and around the world to be agents of hope and new life for people. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Listening to the Peninsula Covenant Church podcast. We're located at 3560 Farm Hill Boulevard in Redwood City, California. You can reach us online at www.peninsulacovenant.com.